Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. What is it, shark? No, I don't want to see your new material. You're a shark. You swim, you eat, you attack, you jump out of the water. That's it. Shark Week has been going since 1988, and frankly, the whole concept is on its downward slope. People, you know, they're tired of you. That's kind of the elephant in the room. No, there's not an actual elephant in the room. That's an expression. So much you don't understand. Yeah, you know what else you don't understand? Show business. Nielsen ratings. Overexposure. You know who people really want to see? Giant squids. Yeah, I know you find that upsetting, but giant squids, nobody ever sees them. Meanwhile, you can't swing a cat these days without hitting one of you idiots. No, that's another expression. I'm not swinging a cat. You know, I'm starving, and there's nothing to eat here. No cat, no elephant. We're not making a video, so just beat it, would you? Don't sulk. That's very unattractive in a man-eating predator. Meanwhile, the rest of us will listen to The Nose, which is about Robin Williams, comment threads, and the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. And now, the guy who turned down the chance to manage Dory, Marlon, and Nemo before they got cast in the movie, Colin McEnroe. That's true. Uh, They were in my office. I can remember it like it was yesterday. They were in my office, and I said to them, uh, no one is going to make a movie about clownfish. Uh, so just forget about it. No one is ever going to make a movie about clownfish. Now, technically, I think Dory is not a clownfish. I think he's a regal tang. But anyway, you understand the point I was making. They went away dejected. And, of course, I lost a lot of money on that. I should have been managing them. All right. That's the end, however, of our Piscine or aquatic um, uh, talk because we were we discussed at one point possibly maybe um, talking about uh, shark fatigue. The fact that Shark Week has been going on so long, since 1988, that people are really tired of it. Even with Sharknado, you can't really get sharks to do that many uh, things that you haven't seen before. However, there's other pressing things. And it turns out also one of our guests, Carolyn Payne, still really likes Shark Week. Uh, and actually, if you'd, seen, uh, if you'd seen Carolyn's newest bathing suit, you'd understand the other reason why we're not talking sharks today. Anyway, that's, that's a long story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Carolyn Payne is with us today. She's a comedian, writer, dance impresario, three or f- actress, three or four other things I'm I'm not thinking uh, of. And Rand Cooper is here with us today. Uh, he is a gourmand, uh, an author, an essayist, a critic, uh, and three or four other things I'm not thinking of. Uh, Tanisha Dugan was going to be with us today. She can't make it. Uh, we're going to uh, struggle along with just the three of us. It means we can all talk more, uh, which actually everybody involved with the show today feels okay about, although we do miss Tanisha and and I uh, hope she's listening right now. So um, we the question was, I mean, it's been a long week of sort of encomiums and, and talk about Robin Williams. Is there anything left to say? Although uh, yesterday, obviously, there was a new development, which was we started to learn a little bit more about the predicament in which, which Robin Williams found himself. He, he was early on with the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, disease and that seems to have influenced uh, his thinking. In fact, uh, Rand, uh, you told me an interesting story by email today, which was somebody that you know, I, you probably don't want to say what his name was, but somebody who's a medical professional kind of guessed that something like that might have been in the offing somehow. 
Right. It's a, he's a doctor who deals with celebrities frequently, and I don't know if he had any inside information. I don't think he particularly did. I don't think he knew Robin Williams personally, but he said, uh, I heard by a friend that this guy had said, you know, there's something else going on here. I'm, I'm guessing that he has had some devastating medical diagnosis, and uh, that was, that was I think, on, on Wednesday, Tuesday and Wednesday, and then I, I didn't hear the uh, actual news until today. You know, uh, Carolyn, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, and I listened to the Mark Marin uh, interview with Robin Williams, um, and uh, just just turning my all this stuff over in my mind is whether, and we should say that uh, Carolyn is about to join Hannibal Burris on the Oddball tour, the Oddball tour that came into Hartford uh, rather ingloriously uh, with Dave La- Dave Chappelle uh, last year. Um, but uh, and she's also about to go out and do some work with Second City. It, it makes me wonder whether comedians are different. Like listening to Mark Maron and Robin Williams have this very on-team conversation, often kind of invoking names and ideas and, and, and terms of art that wouldn't necessarily be familiar to the average person. It made me realize that comedians, like firefighters, like oceanographers, like a lot of other people, I mean, they live in their own specific world, but they also mine a lot of stuff in themselves in, in very specific ways. Um, and Mark Maron obviously minds it for melancholy a lot of the time. <laughs> Robin Williams mined it for other things. It, it makes you wonder, you know, are these different people? Are they really people who would maybe process a piece of news like Parkinson's disease or, or something else in a different way? I absolutely think so. I know I, I think a lot of times the the root of comedy, I know even for myself, a lot of things that I take and turn into a set or turn into writing is the darker stuff, that, and you're kind of making light of it, and it's a coping mechanism. I mean, that's that's a, just a well-known way that humans deal is to laugh and to find a way to cope. So, And I think that how every comedian processes that and how they present themselves, I mean, like you said, Mark Marin, I feel like he uses his, his general melancholy and and. and all of his sadness and frustrations in life is just his whole shtick. Whereas Robin Williams had this very cheery, you know, frenetic energy persona where it was just this constant, um, he, he was just constantly moving and he just constantly had this energy. So it's very hard to picture someone like that just kind of stopping and and not not having that energy. But behind that energy was this real darkness Obviously. Yeah. I have to, first of all, tip my hat, as I so often do, uh, to friend and colleague uh, Mike Pesca, who on his podcast, The Gist, I must have been, I couldn't have been more than four or five days, if that, before the Robin Williams, the announcement of Robin Williams' death. Uh, maybe it was a little bit more because I don't always listen to them in a timely fashion. But uh, he, devo- he devoted about 16 to 20 minutes to a conversation about comedians and mental illness and comedians um, struggling with with various kinds of demons and, and seeking treatment or not seeking treatment, um, it was just wound up being a very prescient uh, podcast. But you know the common thread ran with all these guys, and which and it really came out on Pesca's show was that question of losing your edge. All right, your edge. Uh, and one of the things that comedians said repeatedly, there were a bunch of comedians who were interviewed or, or quoted on the show, was that um, they were reluctant to seek treatment sometimes for their depression or their other uh, mental illnesses because they were afraid, just in the same way that Carolyn was kind of describing, what if I lose my edge? What if I'm happier but that really deprive I mean, something that a cellist probably wouldn't have to go through, but with a comedian, that, that question of your, your mood you know, actually is your art in some ways. 
Um, I have two thoughts about that with regard to Williams. And given the news that's come out in the past day or two about the Parkinson's, you sort of are left with the set of thoughts you had about Williams' suicide before that Mm -hmm. and the somewhat different set of thoughts you have now. Um, Before the Parkinson's news came out, it it occurred to me to think, um, you know, Williams' kind of comedy was something that took a lot out of him as uh, – I mean physically. He wasn't like um, – he wasn't like you know, the Jerry Seinfeld kind of comedian and I love Jerry Seinfeld who has these bits and he works through the bits meticulously and he tries them out and he corrects them and he makes them funnier. Williams's comedy was much more of um, uh, a performance art and, and this manic riffing that he did, A – at times represented or, or, or resembled a kind of borderline, you know, mental or emotional unbalance. I mean, it was a, it was a manic, dep- it was the manic side of a manic depressive personality. Just watching him sweat yeah. on stage. Watching, <laughs> watching him sweat, the, the, you know, this, this is a, a kind of thing that especially as you get to be 60, I mean, can you really get your body up for that, <laughs> up to that level of performance that his kind of manic energy required? Um, that was my first thought. After the Parkinson's came out, I, I found myself um, you know, thinking about Michael J. Fox and and how he has dealt with Parkinson's and the cur- the courage and and brilliance um, that he has ha- that he's shown in turning that to performance advantage. You know, I, I happened to watch him in in uh, I didn't didn't watch that show that he did a couple of years ago, but I've, I've seen him in The Good Wife, and and. He brilliantly uses his Parkinson's to help create a really obnoxious character who you dislike in part because he's manipulatively using his Parkinson's. Uh, and, and every time I see that performance, I think, man, A, are you a courageous human? And B, are you really a genius actor? It's a little harder to imagine Robin Williams having used his Parkinson's that way. Parkinson's eventually reduces you, as we've seen with Muhammad Ali, to the situation in which the cognitive person is largely there, but you are expressionless. And for for a Robin Williams to be rendered incrementally more and more expressionless um, and, and to not have you know, control over all those voices he did, his, his performances was, were always often a kind of a series of sequence of interesting masks that allowed him to be something other than himself. Parkinson's does that in in this in this dreadful way, and and you know I I mean I don't know what to say about how awful that must seem to him. Actually, now that you're talking that way, you know, required reading really uh, for this conversation should have been uh, Michael Kinsley, who also has Parkinson's disease, did a really interesting piece in the New Yorker. I think about four months ago, would yeah. you say? It was, and it was about m- his mental edge and is he losing his mental edge? And it, it was all done in a very witty. Kinsleyan fashion, but he talked about various kinds of tests that he'd taken, and there are tests that ultimately do come as close as possible to t- testing your mental agility and your mental acuity, and and uh, and it was sort of about all of our anxieties, particularly as baby boomers as we age. You know, what kind of edge are we lo- using? Losing uh, as we go along here. By the way, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six is a number that you could call if you wanted to add to this conversation. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. So, Carolyn, you know, as this kind of week has unfolded, um, all these different stories, of course, surfaced, and uh, I had missed it the first time around. Today, I caught up with this kind of tweet storm that uh, the comedian Norm Macdonald did. Have you, saw, have you seen I that did. one? Yeah. yeah. It's this, this amazing story about the fact that he was about to go on David Letterman for the first time, a relatively unsung performer. He's all alone in the dressing room, seems to be kind of a deserted floor of the building, uh, you know, well, well, well before the show. 
he's on his phone uh, to his friend and, and he sees Robin Williams walk by and Robin, he's going to be following Robin Williams. He already feels very disadvantaged because he feels Williams is the best comedian in the world. He sees Robin Williams walk by. He mentions that to his friend. Williams hears his name, pivots around and comes back into the dressing room and immediately starts to dress Norm MacDonald or pretend to dress Norm MacDonald as a Jewish tailor. And he's asking him in this, you know, hyper-pronounced accent <laughs> if he, quote, addresses left or right uh, and, and buzzing around him and, and fussing with his clothes and doing this comedy routine. And finally, Norm MacDonald says, can you talk to my friend? Because my friend is on the phone with me and he's not going to believe this. Williams takes the phone and immediately becomes um, someone at a Chinese restaurant taking the friend's order and, and, and for 10 minutes talking about what they're out of and what they can't have. And, and then the phone goes back and he goes back to Norm MacDonald. He turns back into the Jewish tailor. He dresses Norm MacDonald. He actually does dress him and tie his tie, his tie in a Windsor knot and then disappears. And one of the things, I mean, there's so much there in that, just in that little anecdote. But sort of to Rand's point, and I saw Williams while when he was on the set of uh, The World According to Garp. And similarly, he, what, what should have been some downtime for him, he was pacing back and forth performing for everybody. And some comedians say, that's the real me. Forget, forget how I am if I'm just sitting in my house in, on a couch talking to a couple of people or something. That's sort of not the real me. The real me actually is that person. Um, and you get that feeling with Williams that, you know, that's maybe even in the Mark Maron interview, he seems very relaxed and almost a little drowsy at times. And then he just veers off into shtick pretty quickly. He can't tell a story without doing six different voices. And maybe that he felt like that's that's the real me. Absolutely. I, I think um, that became clear. One of the things when, you know, a celebrity passes away, like, you know, there's all this public mourning because we feel like we know them. And and. Sometimes when a celebrity passes away, it's when you get to know them even more because you're hearing all these never heard before stories, all these, you know, untold little anecdotes, private moments. And that's kind of how I I, I felt like I was getting to know Robin Williams this week for the first time. And it turns out like he was pretty much what what he was. What you saw was what you were getting. Um, You know, there were there was another very sweet story about the girl who played his daughter in Mrs. Doubtfire and how he went to bat for her. And she wrote a great uh, a great article about that. And but I I think Robin Williams really was Robin Williams. Like I (laughs) am meeting him in person. I never got to. But I'm sure like anybody can say he just was constantly on and performing, which is exactly I'm the opposite of that. <laughs> I'm one of those people who, you know, if you aren't dangling you know, the carrot of money to perform, I'm not going <laughs> to be like a little monkey and do a dance for you and get up there and make you laugh. But he was he just genuinely just had all of this inside of him. And that was just how he interacted. Well, you know, grieving for a, a public figure, a celebrity, it's a fascinating topic. You don't really know that person, as, as you said. So it's not the same at all as grieving the loss of someone you knew. You're grieving uh, um, some sort of fantasy that you have concocted through inference and imagination about who, who that person might be. And uh, the person that we, that we came up with through that process with Robin Williams was always someone who we thought is, was generous and kind. And, and that's partly, I think, because his kind of comedy lacked the sort of acid, misanthropic uh, quality that many comedians sometimes necessarily have. There was nothing – he didn't tear down other people with his humor. The person he tore down was often himself. Um, 
And uh, and so you know when the the girl from Mrs. Doubtfire writes that article and she says he was an incredibly kind human being, you sort of think, well, you know, I somehow suspected that ab- about him. Um, I I do think uh, the the other reason perhaps we suspected that is I think when you said you know what you saw with him was what you got. There were these two Robin Williams. I mean, he I think of him as the one actor that I always look forward to seeing on a on a Letterman or another late night show. A lot of actors they're out there, you know flacking their latest product and it's really hideous and boring. But with Williams, you could count on something good was going to happen um, and, and he was going to zoom off on one of these wild tangents. Speed was always the defining characteristic of his improvisation, you know, speed, spontaneity, association. Um, and there was, there was that Williams and it sort of half of his movies were designed to showcase that Williams like Good Morning Vietnam. But then he did these other – increasingly did these other movies that almost seemed designed to, to tell you, you know, I'm not just that Robin Williams. I'm, I'm, I can play. I, I can play a, 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 a ruthless killer, you know, as he did in that, that film with Al Pacino, you know, in The Darkness. What's that called? Insomnia. Yeah, Insomnia. Um, or this demented guy working in the photo department of the store, a one-hour photo I think it was called, who develops this, 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 uh, this, this um, obsession with a family and their, and their photos. But then there were those films where he played sort of the soulful, sorrowful person whose eyes were almost brimming with tears of empathy like in Moscow and Hudson and, and – and, um, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting, mm-hmm. Jacob the Liar in a way. And even if he allowed or managed to smuggle in a few moments – of the Manic Williams, like in Dead Poet Society is a great film because it has both of yeah. them. You know, he does like the riffing Shakespeare is done by Marlon Brando. But then there's like the, you know, the, the Williams who's got those, that brimming eye look and he's giving his, his kids this great advice for life. So I think he was effective at conveying that, that other Williams to us and we accepted it. We accepted it. Um, I'm going to grab a call from Marianne. And, well, actually, I'll just grab that call. It may lead to where I wanted to go. Anyway, here's uh, Marianne in Danbury. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm just listening, and I always watch to listen. But I, uh, all this talk since his passing, which was horrible, um, it just strikes me that everyone's trying to look for an answer to make themselves feel better. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, my first thought was, oh, God, you know, anybody who's depressed was thinking, geez, could I ever deteriorate to that level? And it's frightening. And I remember Jane Pauley saying on CBS the next day, the suicide control lines lit up. And, you know, it's just, it's like we're all looking for an answer, but I don't think... You know, you know, some things just you can't make sense of them. All right, yeah, I, I would agree, and I think that's a fruitless quest. Although, I mean, just uh, to go back to what we were saying before about comedy, and uh, Carolyn Rand mentioned at one point Jerry Seinfeld. You know, Seinfeld, and I didn't really realize this until listening to Pesca's uh, show, Seinfeld apparently feels and has said that he feels a little ostracized, a little stigmatized, a little left out of things because he is the comedian who does not – have any evidence psychic distress that you know that he's he's not in treatment he hasn't needed treatment he's been asked a lot of questions Howard Stern grilled him about this at one point and saying I bet you hated your parents or something like that you just you know come on tell me tell me what it is um, that that they're actually and that Seinfeld really is this kind of rare bird that they're you know the all the people that he knows you know all the Richard Lewis's and Larry Davids and the people are, are messes in one way or another which is kind of it's an interesting commentary on the profession anyway well I mean I, I I've been open on this show talking about I I'm very anxious person I have a lot of anxieties I mean it's not to the point where it's crippling by any means but um I I think that those anxieties are a lot of who I am as a performer and a lot of what I can take to to work with and because 
people like that when they can identify with you. And I think a lot of times with comedy, a big thing of things that is, are funny are people identifying being like, yes, I'm afraid of that too. Yes, I hate that too. Oh my God, I sit around worrying about that. Yes, I look up rashes on WebMD too. Like, <laughs> all these things that then people, it, it helps it helps you connect. And in some ways for me, it, it ends up being therapeutic because you're connecting and you realize like, oh, okay, I'm not that weird. <laughs> so, By the way, the, the Mayo Clinic site is much better for rashes. <laughs> okay, I'll keep that Web in mind. M- WebMD, I don't think it's that good. Yeah, uh, WebMD, I should really stay off of that. I should just for, block yeah, it it's, from it's, my browser, it's, actually. It, look, let me just say, it's for lightweight hypochondriacs. <laughs> the serious people, we, don't, we go right to the Mayo Clinic. They've got all the same information, but it just has a little bit uh, more reliable standard. I, I, I sympathize with Seinfeld's comment, and yeah. I think it sheds a light on how much we tend to link the idea of, of – creative inspiration to the idea of uh, to, to, to a messed up childhood, to unhappiness. Anguish. And, anguish. And that, and that only the person who has, who has suffered, who has been marginalized uh, and, and uh, excluded in some regard and particularly unhappy in childhood is the likely future uh, creator of, 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 of excellence. And that's not just true for, for comedians. Mm-hmm. I think it's very true with writers. We live in a culture in which the memoir – of, of, of family dysfunction is, is almost like, you know, the necessary key to the domain for almost every, any writer who, who, who wants to get in there. I, I, I'm always uh, haunted by um, a letter exchange between E.B. White and James Thurber, who combined both the writing, as you say, and the humor. Uh, and, and they're writing back and forth and they're talking about how miserable they are. They're both in different ways, very miserable people. Thurber, probably a lot more miserable than White, but White, a very unhappy man and an anxious man in a lot of ways. And they're talking about that and they're saying, is this necessary? You know what I mean? Do we have to? And then they, they, they talk about Robert Benchley, a, a comic writer who's sort of a slightly different generation. He's a little bit older than either one of them. And, they, and one of them says, look at Benchley. He laugh. He sing. Uh, they, he just, they, they talk about him as this sort of guy who seems to have escaped this whole curse. But mm-hmm. it, it is, you just get a window and the, this is something people do uh, talk about and wonder how endemic it is to creativity. All right. We've got to take a quick break here. We've got two other topics we're going to tackle here. We'd love to get your phone calls, not on this topic anymore, but uh, on others as we go along here today because we're, we're down a panelist that might make some room for you to call in. Well, the news is uh, usually a merry affair, and right now we're going from Parkinson's disease to ALS, which I realize sounds a, a little grim, but uh, but there's sort of an, it's an interesting cultural baggage that goes along with this, too. One of the things we're always interested in is how something becomes viral. Why does something spread? Why does uh, something become incredibly popular in this proving ground of the internet? 
so one of the things that has done that is this thing called the Ice Bucket Challenge. Um, it seems to have started among athletes. Uh, it's spread everywhere. The notion basically is that you take uh, an ice bucket of water and dump it over your head. Uh, if you're not willing, if you're challenged to do this and you're not willing to do it, you give uh, $100 to the fight against ALS. So uh, this is not a purely theoretical and speculative conversation for at least one of the people uh, sitting here, uh, Carolyn Payne. You've actually done this. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about your own experience with it. And that'll, uh, I, I should say, where, uh, where we're going with it, which is that not everybody likes this. And, and there are people, including people pretty close to the AL, ALS community, who are saying, really, isn't there a better way to raise money and raise awareness than to put people through this? And the ice bucket kind of becomes the story instead of the, the fight against the disease. But uh, tell us about your experience. All right. I, I agreed to do this for a, a couple of reasons. Uh, it started out in Boston. I'm a native to Boston. So I had been seeing this on Facebook because it started, like you said, from athletes. And uh, I knew it was only a matter of time before I get, got tagged in it. And I you know, debated to myself, oh, will I do it? And you know, I, I ended up kind of researching it to make sure that <laughs> – and um, I got tagged by uh, a little buddy of mine. He's 13 years old and he also put on the stipulation that not only was he tagging me to do it, but he wanted to throw the ice bucket on my head. So if you see the video of me, I'm getting doused in ice water by a 13-year-old who then obnoxiously gets in my face and is like, ha, ha, <laughs> in a very, um, very fitting way. But to me, there were personal reasons that I wanted to um, to do this, uh, as a lot of people participating in it have personal reasons. But, you know, it's summer. Like, it's ice water. A lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to have to. It's hot out. I think this would have a lot more meaning if this went around in, like, January. And and I think that that would be amazing. <laughs> and then you're really getting to separate the mice from the men, so to speak. But I just think it's a great way to spread awareness. And I know it's very gimmicky and everything, but I, I did stress, like, when I when I did it and shared it, donate to, don't just do it and do this for, you know, to go for glory because I, I see a lot of that. Like, you see girls out there just doing this so that they have an excuse to video themselves in a sports bra getting wet on Facebook and spread it around. Um, but I, I think it's a good thing when anything can help spread awareness of something, raise a ton of money as this has, and get people to at least think about doing good and thinking about things that they can do that can go viral and help spread good for other causes. To how many people did you then subsequently? Because this thing functions as kind of a chain letter, right? It's, a cha- like, like, it's like a chain letter in a couple of ways. One of the ways is there's a kind of if you don't, you know. Right. You're basically sort of, threatening your friends that you're extorting their money if they don't want to get wet. Um, <laughs> so how many people did you tag? Three, one of whom was Kion. Yeah. <laughs> Still waiting on that. Right. So um, so uh, I've been uh, challenged and tagged by somebody else too. Somebody I don't even really know, uh, which I also have some strange thoughts about. But uh, Rand, I'd be interested to know your general thoughts about this. <laughs> I have a set of incoherent and baffled thoughts. But I'll just say personally, I would hate to do this. The thought of having a bucket of ice water dumped over my head. I just – it's – I don't like being startled. I think I'll have a heart attack. You know it's coming. You know – no, but I mean – no, no. <laughs> but the, 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 the physical sensation of this suddenly happening is, is like being startled emotionally. But it's, it's – your body is being startled. You know it's happening mentally. But I, I hate the thought of it. I do think that anything that Tom Foley is doing to kick off his campaign, you know, probably is something that has seriously jumped the shark, to use our, our earlier metaphor. <laughs> so I wonder about that. Um, I, I would say, you know, there are two difficulties. First of all, I'll say my, my mother-in-law died three years ago of, of ALS. So I, I'm, you know, I, I know a lot about ALS and, 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 I, understand, and I understand 
the particular agonies that it involves. And a good friend of mine died of it uh, years ago, and it lasted for a very long time. And the process of dying that way, it's really one of the worst ways to, to die. Um, so there's, there's an inherent unusual gravity and agony that attaches to this. And that creates a jangling dissonance. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just noting this with the sort of larkish-like uh, hijinks of this, of this stunt. So I think one thing that is interesting to try to make sense of is, you know, is, is that – is there some way that they can go together other than, by, other than by saying, hey, look, this is raising money and raising awareness? I mean, what, what, what if, you know, what – Colin, help me out here. Like you can, you could, you could put together a lot of things that are so dissonant, but they're serving a good function. Right? How do you make sense of that? Well, see, I, and I think, but see, I think that's a thing. I think that's a, a, a motif, and and it's maybe something more than that. This this thing has its roots in a whole bunch of other things. It really almost goes back to uh, if you go to your school fair, uh, one of the teachers will be sitting <laughs> in some kind of dunking mechanism where if you throw the ball, the you know the teacher gets uh, dropped into the into the water and often. That's raising money for the PTA or something like that, and in and, and situations where guys challenge each other to shave their heads or something like that, again for a good cause. And I, this this ALS thing, I mean, I, I absolutely understand what a horrible disease this is, and, and I salute the fact that it did. It, first of all, the thing to say is it worked. Uh, I think uh, one of the major ALS groups says say they've raised an extra two point three million dollars uh, doing this, so it worked. Uh, there are complaints about the fact that a lot of times the celebrities do it; they don't even mention ALS. But it, overall, it worked. And here's my theory, Rand. I think that <laughs> it's a really horrible theory in some ways. I think all of these things are ways in which we kind of link some of our otherwise unexpressible hostility <laughs> and desire to sort of see what each other, you know, go through discomfort or, or, or things like that to a really good cause. It's like if, if I said I wanted to dump ice water over your head for no reason, that would sort of obviously be kind of an aggressive and hostile act. <laughs> but it's completely <laughs> redeemed because it's linked to this very important cause. And I think we do – I mean I'm not really saying – I'm not saying that everybody who does this is really expressing you know, some kind of deep anger. But we, there, there is something a little aggressive. I mean when this random guy that I didn't know <laughs> on Facebook said, oh, well, I'm challenging you to dump – I'm thinking, well, why are you doing that? <laughs> why don't you just challenge me to give $100 to ALS, <laughs> which I would r- really rather do – and why is this ice water thing part of this conversation? Except that you probably think it would be kind of amusing in a very, you know, prankish and possibly. This is probably some guy who was on a comment thread right. anticipating our next yeah. day, <laughs> one of one of your comment yeah. threads. You know, but I will say, I mean, my very personal understanding of this is when I think about my my mother in law, whom whom uh, whom I loved, uh, and she certainly sometimes felt like dumping a bucket of ice water on my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so if I were to do this, I, I would be doing it saying, "All right, Kathy, this is this is for you because you probably <laughs> wanted to do this at certain points." All right, you. I I, I don't want to short give short shrift to this topic, but we do have to sort of move on because. Our final topic is uh, about comment threads. So Gawker, the Gawker media empire this week had a real problem with their comment threads, which involved people uploading really horrible stuff. Uh, it's possible uh, because of their platform to put gifts and other kinds of stuff up. And the things that were going up were really horrible. So, But Gawker loves comments. So all those Gawker um, entities like Gawker, Jezebel, Deadspin, stuff like that, they, lo- they, they work off comments. So they, they need to fix that glitch and keep the comments going. But this prompted a pretty thoughtful 
essay in a, a, a publication called The Pacific Standard uh, where they haven't like, gotten rid of comment threads because they're just so awful and filled with trolls. Um, and so this, I don't know, this has led us in all kinds of different directions. But Carolyn, one of the things you pointed out to us was um, the website of an Australian radio station. This is earlier this summer where somebody had posted a recipe for making frozen rainbow cake that had numbers on it. It was entirely... It's like a Pinterest cake. It's yeah. it, it, it's rainbow on the outside with like fondant and rainbow on the inside. I mean, it's the kind of thing that literally like it would take less time to drive to another state and buy a cake than it would to sit and make this cake. You know, it's one of those nightmare-inducing Pinterest <laughs> things that you get roped into. It's called Ra- Amazing Rainbow Tie-Dye Number Surprise Cake. Yeah, it even takes way too long to say. But it, it ended up... It, the comments went from questions about how to make this to political discussions. I mean, it just it, – it, I think the website calls it the apocalypse of, com- of, of comment section or, or the world or something. I mean, it, it was so – People began insulting each other on multiple bases. You right. Know, where they were from, what kind of parent they were, what kind of <laughs> – what their politics were, whether they understood what words meant. The ra- – the- the way that it escalated is just outrageous. It took about 10 comments for this just to become horrifying. Um, and I think this is the this to me was the penultimate example of comment threads just being awful. Like, just get rid of them. I, I've seen it on my own personal Facebook. And um, I did a web series for a while. I was doing this, like, comedy science news web series. And we launched the first episode on YouTube and there were like 12 comments within the first two days and most of them made me want to sit in a room and cry. (laughs) It was people just attacked. And I remember the producer of it saying, just don't worry about it. We don't feed the trolls. (laughs) Mm. But it's hard to not... And and, and it was ridiculous things that people go after. So I'm a firm believer. Just get rid of it. Shut it off. (laughs) Our number, by the way, 860-275-7266. You will not be shut off, but don't be a troll. (laughs) 860-275-7266. You may tweet us. Our our tweet master, Greg Hill, isn't in today, but he may be tweeting, I'm not sure, uh, at WNPR Colin. Whether he's here or not, obviously, you may tweet at us at WNPR Colin. Rand, I know this is something you've thought a lot about, and you occasionally do write things that get comments. So uh, where do your thoughts go? I noticed uh, a a week or so ago... um, uh, one of the parents of one of the Newtown kids uh, wrote wrote a piece about Newtown Sandy Hook deniers, mm-hmm. and I'd, I'd been away when this was written. And when I came back, I went online and saw, and I was interested in reading the comments. And I saw there were no comments, which uh, meant, means that the current closed down the comment section. Now, listeners will know that many places like well, the, while the New York Times is able to afford a staff of people who moderate discussions and therefore keep it civil. Uh, papers like The Current uh, can't afford that. So they tried a number of years ago to use Facebook, the idea being that, oh, if you're a real person connected to a Facebook site, you're less likely to uh, spew toxic uh, um, stuff on you know, on a comment. And it toned it down a little bit, but it didn't take care of the problem. So as soon as I saw that, that and there were no comments posted in that article, I knew that deniers had gotten on and said really, really awful things. To me, this is often been a source of despair and uh, about who we are as a, as a culture of, of civil conversers. And also sometimes, you know, it's freaked me out. I mean, I wrote some pieces about gun control and, uh, and I tried my best 
both to set them up and to address the responders in a way that would encourage a civil conversation. But inevitably, a number of people got on um, who really scared me actually. And when one of them figured out where I lived and started mailing stuff to my house, I I, I honestly thought, all right, you know what? I'm never writing a piece like this again because um, it's, it's not worth it. I mean, it actually, if you, if you think probabilistically about such things, you know, it actually substantially increased the small uh, possibility that someone shows up and like blows me away or something. So, you know, what, for a current op-ed, it's not worth it. Is so, uh, you know, the only thing I would say is I pick up on a, on a note of Collins. Collins, in one of your emails, you said, I remember when all of this was first possible and how exciting it was, you know, to be able to post and comment. And I will say that, that there is... There is this project whereby you use a thread in order to develop arguments, in order to listen to what other smart people are saying. This was the initial idea. It's like, oh, I've thought about social or political problem up to point X and I haven't been able to go beyond that. I want to hear what people are saying about the ideas I've taken to this point because you know what? They've gone beyond that. that's the situation in which it becomes this group sort of crowdsourcing prospect. But, you know, that whole idealistic project seems to have been swamped in a sea of toxic muck. <laughs> what were you going to say? Well, I, I just think that – and I've talked about this with Twitter. I, the internet, like, opened the door to this because I feel like people think that they're hiding behind something. I, people say things online and on Twitter that they would never – say some people. I mean, some people will just flat out say that. But a lot of times there's a lot of people who use this as kind of something to hide behind and just blast out just nasty, nastiness, just nastiness. And I think that that's it's interesting because it di- it is such a great forum to have intellectual discussions and to share your thoughts and give yourself because not everyone has a public forum to discuss things or even sometimes a private forum. You know, it's a great it should be a great place to discuss things. But instead, uh, you know, one it just takes one person the, to ruin the, it for one everyone. One thing I'll add, like chat rooms where there's a dedicated so- topic, where it's not just people sounding off. But let's say, like, you know, you're a potter and you're interested in in knowing something about the clay or 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 the wheel, or you know, there are plenty of places where people don't just then weigh in saying, you you know, you douchebag, you have no idea what you're doing with pottery. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's these general opinion forums. As opposed to, oh, you know, I'm involved in craft X or I'm, I'm into gardening and you know what? I'm pretty bad at it. So I need to find out more stuff. I, I do think there are these dedicated areas where, guess what? The conversation is still happening in a really productive, it's collective way. It's true. If you way. read the comments on Pinterest, they're usually very positive. <laughs> you don't find like crazy cat ladies sitting at home attacking each other. They're, they're like, wow, I love your right. terrarium. Exactly. And it help. There's only people who comment on, on like blogs like Collins where <laughs> someone expresses an opinion. And then also, you know, there is this general sort of default resentment like who are you to have an op- who are you Colin McEnroe to have an opinion I've got my opinion and and you're paid for you're paid for putting yours out there what makes you better than me I mean there is a certain sort of raging populist resentment that the ver- that, that that the internet has has uh, you know tossed tossed fuel onto this uh, conversation all happens just by coincidence uh, we, we planned it uh, earlier on a day when I'm actually having kind of an argument with the current about this whole question. And so uh, I just have, I want to say a few things. First of all, I think one of the things that Rand said is really important that, you know, after his experience writing about the Second Amendment, uh, he sort of didn't want to write pieces like this anymore. And I do think there's a chilling effect. Uh, I do know of at least one person who, uh, who stopped writing opinion pieces um, for the current because – and I think he would say that somewhere between 40 to 60 percent of the reason was that these unmoderated comments, which be turned into deeply personal and unfounded attacks, it just, they just wore him down. He just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, I, I, 
I struggle with this a lot. I've had guys who did similar kinds of things. I had one guy who researched my life, found out that my father had died of cirrhosis, and began taunting me about that on common threads. Uh, I've had um, – uh, I think there's another chilling effect that's directed at reasonable commenters. Reasonable co- commenters go on. They want to join a, a constructive, interesting back and forth about something and they're, they're often threatened. They are frequently women. Uh, I, this has got, happened again and again. I've seen it again and again that a woman commenter will be threatened or, or taunted sometimes by another woman commenter but usually by a man. Um, one of the problems that I have is that the system that exists now in places like the Hartford Current really privileges the troll over everybody else. It's, it's, um, I got in trouble today. One of my latest technique has been to sort of jump onto the comment threads on my articles and just kind of play with the trolls a little bit. And I'll sort of <laughs> say, really, is that the best you can do? Come on, because I give you an A for really good trolling. But this is sort of a t- – today I had this – I have this column up about Robin Williams and Philip Seymour Hoffman and about art and death and madness. And so this guy jumps on and writes, Colin McEnroe for dog catcher. Click. That's his, that's his comment. And so I sort of jumped. I said, really, little troll? Is that the best you can? I mean, you can't even really engage with the material. I'd love to give you a good grade, but it's a D minus for the day. He called the editor uh, and complained uh, that I had been berating him. <laughs> and so I had to spend some of my day in trouble. And this has happened to me multiple times. Anytime I've jumped in on behalf of a sane and decent commenter, uh, the trolls will often complain about that, uh, and, and I get called on the carpet. And there has to be a better system. There has to be a better system in which, you know, decent, nice people who want to be in, in a conversation on a comment thread are protected, and people who want to create content are protected, and the trolls aren't. They, sh- <laughs> they should be third out of three, not first out of three. And I don't understand how how it came to be this other way. And the solution is is it has to be moderated. Yeah, you know, but who, but yet you have to have one person. So so the current has to pony up and and hire someone, some part-time person. Well, it have to be a full-time person. But then that, that would be the person's job. It's a job. lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of labor. Yeah. Let me grab a call here from Anthony in Prospect. Hi Anthony. Hi, how's it going? Okay. Um I'm just uh I have frequent the internet quite often. I don't know if you guys are familiar with a website called Reddit. Yeah. Okay, they, uh, I mean, it, it is, you know, a typical website on the internet. There's, of course, your trolls, the people that are just there to make everyone else's day miserable. But there are also a lot of, uh, they're what's called subreddits. It's kind of how the website's organized. It's like, uh, different interests, things like that. Anyone can create a subreddit for literally anything. I mean, it goes from, you know, r slash cooking, which is what they call subreddits, r slash to, you know, r slash gardening to r slash funny, just, uh, you know, everything you could possibly imagine. And there's quite a few gems in the website, like uh, one subreddit called r slash ask historians. And what they do is they have, uh, well, most uh, subreddits have a moderation team. It's all uh, volunteer-based. But uh, like ask historians, they have what's called their quality contributors. And they're people who are, you know, independently verified to, you know, what they're talking so what you're talking about is, uh, and I don't mean to cut you off, we're sort of low on time and also your phone's a little distorted, but um, my sense of Reddit, and I, I don't do Reddit, although I look at Reddit sometimes, there's a commu- that's a community. It's a self-identified, self-policing, intentional online community where they're trying to achieve a certain thing. And I think the problem with these with legacy media sites is there's no community that really ever develops on the thread of a Hartford Current article or maybe even on a New York Times article, although there may be some curating. But it's hard for people to build up a community on a gawker thread or a series of gawker threads. So so it's you know it maybe does take a village to have a civil discussion and but there's no village there. Reddit is a village, you know. They, they try to do it that way. 
Uh, why don't we take a break here so we'll have time to endorse when we come back. And that's why I'll read some tweets. We actually have some other people who want to talk about this. If we have time, we'll do that. Frozen rainbow cake is stupid, and all the idiotic bubble parents who are trying to make it wouldn't know a macaroon from a madeline. And post. Oh wait, that was a thread about Obamacare. My bad. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh Nalea and Britt Hill. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tara Reed. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff feeding frozen rainbow cakes to great white sharks, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, we're bringing back origami. And now, back to Colin. A few big uh, tweets here. Uh, let's see. Bias Galtar. Oh, I like the sort of... Uh What's that called when you reverse spoonerism? Is it spoonerism when you reverse the consonants or something? Yes. The spoonerism on, on Battlestar Galactica. Uh, I think most of the nonsense speaks to the mass amounts of ignorance and cowards in this world. They have too many outlets now. Uh, living enough tweets, there's nothing like anonymity to fuel the crazy. And Jacques Lamar, a, tw- a, a nose panelist himself, says he's instituting the hot male warm cocoa butter challenge to support ALS research. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Much a kinder and gentler concept. All right. We've got time for endorsements now. Uh, so let's do endorsements. And uh, Carolyn, get us started here. All right. Uh, I'm endorsing Two Roads Brewery down uh, in southern Connecticut. Really fun little day trip to wind out your uh, summer. I can't even believe that summer's ending, that I'm saying things like summer ending. But go enjoy. My endorsement is to go enjoy the last vestiges of summer. And so what is the actual endorsement? Two Roads Brewery. Two yeah. Roads Brewery. Where is yes. that? Uh, it's in uh, Stratford. In Stratford. All right. Two Roads mm-hmm. Brewery in Stratford. All right. Yes. I have a couple of culinary endorsements. Um, Uh, The first is uh, I've been involved in a monthly event at Real Artways in Hartford involving chefs that's been been so popular that they've now extended it for three more episodes. It's called Taste. The next one is a week from Monday. That's the 25th. And the evening involves we watch one in a series of French films about noted French chefs. And then we have a local French chef who does a Q&A and discussion with me about the film afterwards and then cooks for the audience. And uh, a week from Monday, it's Chris Prosperi from uh-huh. uh, Metro Beast, the well-known chef, excellent restaurateur and food personality here in this market. He's also a funny, charming, and very voluble guy. I think there are still some tickets. This, every, this, this event has sold out every single time. It's $25. So that's taste. You can go to the Real Artways website, Monday the 25th. I also want to recommend, and I relatively rarely do this, a restaurant that I reviewed uh, in, of all places, Willimantic, that mecca of, that culinary mecca. It's called Cafe Mantic. It's right on the main street. It opened five years ago as a coffee house. Uh, it was owned by a young Eastern graduate, a guy named Andrew Goot, who said, this is a college town. There's not even a real coffee house. He opened a coffee house, and two years ago, he expanded it into a restaurant. The chef's name is John Hudak. 
and he worked at uh, Grants in West Hartford for a number of years. It's a small plates format, very eclectic, uh, you know, everything from lasagna to jerk chicken. And But I can say that every single dish I've had in four visits to this place has been fabulous. It's in an old mid-last century building that's been eccentrically rehabbed. Um, if you go to the New York Times and just uh, search for Cafe Mantic, you can see the absolutely rapturous review of this place that I wrote uh, last week. It's really can we, the best. Can we put comments on it? Is there a comment? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, really, if you taste anything there, and John is going to be one of the chefs in, in, in the taste series at Real Artways. So I, I've, I don't think I've ever been as ecstatic about a restaurant. It's, it's casual. It's not that expensive. And it's just a great place to go. Cafe Mantic. All right. So um, I do I want to endorse uh, – I'm not a big fan of Mark Marin and his podcast, which is called uh, WTF. Uh, you can you know, fill out that acronym on your own. Uh, and I, I just – I don't know. I just uh, – I don't know what it is about him that I, I just – I've never really cottoned to him all that much. But I know he has this huge following and he has this incredible reputation for being able to get in there with people and get people to have conversations that they wouldn't ordinarily have. And I really do have to bow down to him and say if you have any abiding interest in Robin Williams, you have to – to listen to this conversation. It is absolutely remarkable, and I, I would freely concede that Mark Marin and only Mark Marin could have gotten these responses. If you want to hear Robin Williams probably as close to who he really was uh, as you're ever going to hear him, uh, I would really recommend that you, you listen to this. And I've been told now there's somebody on the on email who's sort of guiding me to some other, other classic epic Mark Marin conversations, which I will now seek out. I'm, I'm somewhat converted anyway. But anyway, and then the last thing I want to say, I want to endorse uh, doing something on Tuesday nights. I said this on Wednesday, but Tuesday nights, boy, they can just drag by, right? They just, they could just like, what do I do? And it's Tuesday night. What do I do? So on Tuesday, September 30th, I, all I want you to do right now is to circle that date. And I'll give you details later, but we are celebrating the fifth anniversary of the Colin McEnroe show. We're going to have a big party. All your favorite nose panelists are going to be there. And some of your least favorite nose panelists will also be there. But all kinds of people are going to be there. Grayson Hugh, whom you hear singing in the background, he's going to be there. We'll tell you where it's going to be later. I just want you to save the date, as they say on Refrigerator Magnets, September 30th. You're invited. If you listen to the show, you're invited to come. I'm Kyone Wolf here with the Ice Bucket Challenge to raise money for ALS. This is dedicated to my Aunt Mariah Gladys, who's been living with ALS since 1981, one of the longest survivors of this disease on the planet. All right, three, two, one. Kyone, you're supposed to break it up into ice cubes before you drop it. Did you birds donate yet, or what? <laughs> 